kid, James Cook grew up with his grandparents on the streets of Jamaica until his parents brought him to London as a nine-year-old and his whole world changed. James grew up on the notorious North Peckham housing estate and went on to become British and European super middleweight champion in an era of classy boxers. But James always loved working with and helping the youth and when he retired he went on to become a successful trainer before saving from closure and then running the famous Pedro Youth Club in Hackney. In 2007, James was deservedly awarded the MBE by the Queen and his life ethos is knowing how to share, how to give and how to love, lessons his granny taught him as a young boy. You can read James' story in his wonderful autobiography, Guardian of the Street, written by his good friend Melanie Lloyd. But in the meantime, why not listen to this really engaging, charming chat with James right here and now. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favourite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favourite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the homepage and click on the red button where it says guests favourite places in London. Click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening. Best wishes and keep safe. Steve. Well, I'm delighted to have on the podcast today the the one and only James Cook, and I don't mean the uh, the old explorer, although he may be an explorer. I don't know. I mean the uh, the wonderful boxer, the former European and British super middleweight boxing champion. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you, Steve. It's really good to have you. Thanks, mate. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm getting over lockdown. You know, <laughs> bit of freedom now. Um, How you found lockdown? Well, Steve, I did a bit. I told the local police that they're having problems because I've been playing domino with the missus and she keep beating me and we end up arguing, you know? That's no good. <laughs> not, not for someone who likes to win. <laughs> you, see, you know I'm trying to be a winner all the time, right? <laughs> I know you are. I know you are. Look, I've read your, I've read your book, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Uh, Thanks, Guardian man. of James Cook MBE, Guardian of the Streets. Written in conjunction or written by, I don't know, she, would you call her a ghostwriter, Melanie Lloyd? Yeah, I'd say so, mate, yeah. Yeah, she did a good job. We're going to talk about that Thanks, in a minute because that's, yeah. your, that's your life story. It is, mate. You've done so many things, I don't even know where to start. I mean, as a young man, you grew up in Jamaica, you didn't come over to the UK till you were nine, but you didn't. You came over when you you followed your parents over here. Well, they yeah, they've first, been, uh, well, they left me really when when I was one. You know, um, so they've spent sort of nine years in London before I even thinking of coming to London when um, my granny, when, you know, back home you're growing up and then your granny said your parents is going to London, England, and then, you know, everybody thought London was sort of paved with money. So my if granny, only. yeah, my granny had a trunk out there where my, I think my mom used to send clothes over, but she used to put them in the damn trunk, my granny. I mean, so I never used to get to wear these clothes, you know, and I never really know my mom till she really come back to pick me up. And then war started, you know, I throw stone at her saying, I'm not going to London, that cold place. I heard it was cold, so I'm not going. <laughs> so, you know what I mean, mate? <laughs> yeah. But in the end, you know, my granny persuaded me to go. So what was the, what was the, 
perception of, of London and the and the UK? I mean, was it considered to be the motherland, or what, what, what was the view of it? You know, to be honest, Steve, I I didn't really hear about the motherland. You know, the word motherland at that time. All I hear about London that it was cold, it was always snowing, it was raining, it was breezy. This is, you know, so that's why when they says when my granny said your mom is coming for you to take you to London. I plant blank refused to say to my granny, I'm not going to that cold country. You know, I'm not, I'm not going. So to be honest, when she said your mother come for me, I end up taking a stone, throwing after my mom, say, you're not taking me to London, you know, but in the end, granny said, go. So I went. That's great. She is. So, they, so your mom comes back and says, here, uh, James, did she call you James or Jimmy? What was it? Well, she called me James, you, you know. James, we're coming to take you back for a better life. And there you are chucking stones at her. She was, <laughs> she was the, this is fantastic. Well, what what was he brought up to be? What sort of respect is that? <laughs> so it was your parents actually left when you were when you were one year old. Yes, and mate, left you yeah. with your your grandparents. Your granny, yeah. Was that a fairly sort of classic thing to do? Well, yeah, at that time, for, as you say, for that time, anybody wanted to um, get a bit of life. As you say, London was the, the motherland. They go to England, but that, the word motherland never been used so much. It's go to England for a better future. Sort of, you know what I mean? So, but like I said, we, you know, we didn't know about London. You know, we grew up with freedom, you know, running this, the the area of Jamaica where we come from, you know, growing fruit, picking fruit, wasn't struggling for nothing. I mean, I think we want, there's a fruit tree, there's something, we go down the road, we get it. So to be quite honest, when I come to London and I land in London and I look around, the first thing I said to myself, damn, I'm going to starve. Because I never really see no tree I could climb and pick fruit and stuff like that. I mean, everything was sort of no, you can't. yeah, you pavement, concrete. You know, so that's the first thing come to my head. You know. So, were you in a rural community when you were in Jamaica? Were you in a just on the outskirts of I don't know Kingston? Or yeah, where yes, you? and sometimes well, it's not really rural. It's big. Yeah, I mean, it's a big place where you you know where a few people come from. You know, but um, you know, inside where we was, it was sort of yeah, it was sort of you know close, close-knit sort of family, you know, um, in the sense of everybody knew everybody. So that's why Carmen, who is my wife now, you know, we used to go to school together. And I remember when, you know, our last trip under the donkey, she said to me, James, when you come to London, you must write me. But Steve, I didn't write her again until I see her at M17. And I said, turn around to my auntie and I said, I should have write. I mean, and we just got back together from there, you know. So I think it was arranged marriage in the West Indies style, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can't you can't just say our last trip on the donkey what do you mean the last trip on the donkey what <laughs> steve but it, it was because we, we was coming from the school and we ride around one donkey you know me holding coming remember it so clear steve me holding her riding up and down she said james write me when you go to london i said yeah yeah but steve i was nine when i come to london i forget all about coming i mean at 16 to be honest so you and carmen so you were, you were real childhood sweethearts you actually met when you were kids? I'd say so, Steve. I'd say, that's why I said it was probably arranged married by our parents, you know, but we didn't know. <laughs> yeah, but there's arranged marriages, but they don't work out. And there's arranged marriages when you're deeply in love and you're clearly very, very much in love, you know, a long-lasting marriage. You've been together many. So there you are. You're in, you're in Jamaica. Your parents have disappeared off, which must have been, I don't know, you're only one, so it probably wasn't too much of a shock to the system because you didn't know anything else. And then you're brought up by your grandparents, who, from reading the book, you, you you loved very much and deeply respected. Uh Steve. Yeah, to be quite honest, Steve, I think they made me the person where I am I, today. Because from a very young age, they were showing me things. You know, they was telling me, 
you know, never be jealous of people. What's yours is yours. If you got this is yours, you know what I mean? And they were showing me that. They were telling me if you got something like food, learn to share, you know, things like that. So a lot of the stuff they're telling me what I'm doing today was really drilled into me from very early. You know, and I said to people, if I'm trying to drill that into people now, you know, I said to people, but I, I was learning this stuff when I was eight, nine, you know, this stuff was in me. Yeah, I mean, what's yours is yours, you know. Um, you know, you see somebody with something, you never get jealous of it, you know. You don't know they come by to get it, you know. So all this was drilling to me very early. Is that a cultural thing or a religious thing or a combination of those? Yeah, it is a culture. It is, it's, a, it's a cultural thing back home, you know, in the West Indies when you're growing up. You know, because um, where we was, we never really say, we never really saying that person was richer, that person had money or anything like that. So that person probably was better off because they've got a shop or they've got a car. But um, we never really saying they was rich, so they was leaving you behind, you know? Reading the book, you also made it quite clear that when you're at school, the behavioural policies, shall we say, or the level of strictness and discipline in school in Jamaica was a very different thing from... from uh, when Steve, it was, it was you know, I'll be a cut to this, Steve. I think when I was... When you I left, be careful what you say now, because my wife, my wife was a teacher for thirty years. <laughs> no, the, the policy was, Steve. You know, the policy was, you, when you wake up, you've got to go to school. You've got to have on your white shirt, everything nice and clean, everything polished. You know, you've got to go really go strict. You know, you're going to school. There was teachers there at the door, looking at your fingernails, putting comb through your ear. You know, that sort of policy. That's how it was. You know, and then um, to be quite honest, Steve, when I am. Um, when I know I was going to London, you know, and I went in the morning, I was late, you know, so I got up late and put water in my hair, got to the gate, t-shirt, put the comb through my hair, a lot of water came out. So obviously I got cane and, you know, I had to stay behind after school. So what happened? There was two teachers, uh, man and wife, that was running the school. And I said to them, guys, guys, lunchtime, I says, teacher got me upset. Let's stone them, you know, let's chuck stone at them when they was coming out of school, Steve. And which we did, you know, we stayed up and we, you know, was stoning the teachers. And when I got home, my granny was running a big pot, making a pot, which was the last food she's going to feed me. I know that. But the rest of the guys, them didn't know that. So after we was eating, you know, we went around, I was eating, I was wondering, hang on, it's not the festival or something. So why is my granny doing such a big meal? So after we had the big meal, they look at me, they said to me, James, what's going to happen when we go back to school tomorrow? And I look at them and I say, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to London tomorrow. <laughs> so they, they all got in trouble. And still yet, Steve, I went back after 30 years, I went back to Jamaica and Carmen Breva was on the roof and he said, you got us cane for that. <laughs> so he's still holding grudge. <laughs> he's still remembering. <laughs> I still hold the grudge against you. <laughs> so there was a big difference in discipline. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Between schooling as a kid in Jamaica and, and coming and come to London. Steve, to be honest, when I come to London and I went to school in London, I, I was shocked. You know, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I was shocked. I, I went to Bellingham Primary School, Steve. And when I went there, I stand at the door waiting for the teacher to call me in. And everybody was pushing past me. And I made a mindset in my class saying, what you doing? So I said, I'm waiting for the teacher to call me in. And he looked at me and he laughed and he says, like, you fool, come in. And he dragged me in and sit down. So it was completely different the way kids was acting in class and playing up and coming out of lesson and want to go toilet, not putting their hands up. It was, you know, just go up and go toilet. Yes, it was sort of a culture shock. So, you know, so every time I go up the stairs, you know, I would stand there waiting for the teacher to tell me to come into class and sit down. So, yeah, totally different. 
So did you find you were more of the quiet one in the class because of the background you've come from, waiting waiting to be, you know, speak, don't speak until you're spoken to? So Steve, it was like that. It was like that in sort of primary school and it was like that in secondary school, uh-huh. you know? So did you find yourself being led astray and be, or were you one of the goody-goodies? <laughs> no, you know, not, not really, Steve, because you know what? I love playing sport, you know, and I think sport is what keeps me on the... And the narrow path, you know, I play sort of any sport, you know, cricket, I play cricket from a primary school, you know, I play for the secondary school, I play rugby, which I thought rugby was going to be the game, you know, I was going to choose. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, so I play a lot of sports, a lot of sports sort of um, just keep me busy, keep acting because people think, hang on, this guy coming from Jamaica, why so good? Steve, I can't play football, but I not manage a football team in Peckham. I haven't got a clue. I mean, but these guys was good. They, they was great. I just put them together and we manage a team. You know, and I was a manager like if it was Alex Ferguson. I didn't have a clue, but this guy went out and play, you know? So you said it was a bit of an eye-opener. Coming, you come over to school, you come over to London, you can't pick fruit off the trees. Where, where, where were you living? Where did your parents sort of move you to? In Peckham. Oh, wow. It's not... not in yeah. Peckham. You know, that in Peckham. That's why... It, no, by, um, by Pe- just near Peckham Park, the market, you know, a place called Linda's Grove. There was a park beside it, Linda's Grove Park. You know, Lind- this is where um, we have first come... And with my mom, and obviously at that time in the sixties, and um, we sharing a room, you know, my, my brother and mom, and then thing came a couple of years after that. That by we moved to in the North Peckham Estate, and then by his house of Dulwich. You know what I mean, I, like even last week, Steve was saying to my dad, "How much did you pay for that house of Dulwich?" And dad says like something like twelve thousand pounds. I'm so for twelve thousand pounds, and they all they house now worth a lot of money and I'm thinking 12,000 he's still got the house he's still got the house Steve you know what I mean he's still got the house oh, well, and you're, you're, you're in for a lot of equity Steve, Steve you, I'm <laughs> telling you you know but I've got to share it with five more <laughs> <laughs> look we don't, we don't want to wish you dad's life away. we want to wish you many many good uh, absolutely good years ahead absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. got to enjoy him while he's still around definitely so man. you're talking of sport Obviously, you're famous for your boxing um, attributes, and you went on to a great success, both at British and European standards. Had what was your first experience of boxing? Was it a, was it a, an unofficial fight, sort of after school? Or? Yeah, it, Steve, you know what what it was, right? We were living in North Peckham Estate. I met a man who Rupert. He used to um, go boxing, and I didn't know. And he says to me, "James, come down the gym because they're trying to close it down." This was at Camwell Green. So he, a lot of us from North Peckham Estate went down the gym. And I just start messing about Steve. One thing I love, I love Muhammad Ali, you know. I told people I divorced my wife from Muhammad Ali. I just love this man, you know what I mean, Steve? And everything I did was sort of Muhammad Ali, you know. I used to start go around in the playground and start to beat up my friend them and say, you're Joe Fraser, I'm Muhammad Ali, you know. And, so, you know, and sometimes you're in the gym. I, I wanted to be like this guy. I want to be like him, obviously. No, we near him and speak, and it was that great. I mean, but this is this was my hero. I was looking up to, you know. And it, my trainer looked at me and he said, mm, "Yeah, natural. You know, you you know, you want to box." And I said, "Yeah, why not?" And I just went from there. My first fight at fourteen. But obviously, as you go along, you learn things, you know, Steve. And you know, and the thing of boxing was so popular. Then you have guys who be in your class, and you might end up boxing them on a boxing show and stuff like that, you know. So yeah, I, I got used to the boxing, and then. I start of was picking on everybody inside the gym now, you know what I mean? And yeah, we just went from there. So what what was boxing like in those days as as, as a kid growing up? Did you have a, a trainer or were you just thrown in a ring and just told to do a bit of sparring? Yeah, no, I we I must Steve, 
I, you know, when I says I'm blessed, I was so lucky. I had a trainer named Jimmy Redrell and Ronnie White. Ronnie was um, in the police force in Devon, was an inspector in Devon. And Jimmy used to work for the papers electrician, you know. And um, these guys was great. I mean, these guys was great. They, Jimmy used to be a professional and Ronnie used to be an amateur. So it come together. We, we had a guy named Ray who used to be the secretary. was about the only blonde guy against about... 50 black guys, you know I mean? He was the only blonde guy amongst us, you know I mean? And we were like family, because after a fight, after a match, everybody used to go around my house and my mom used to cook them dinner. And it used to be great. So we never see color, race, or anything like that. We you, we never, you know, never even understand it to be a quite honest. There was one time my trainer, um, Ronnie, took me down to Devon, you know, and we went in, he lived in Ilfacum in Devon and he stopped off and he says to me, James, go in that shop. And Steve, I got out and I went into the shop and it's like, the shop stands still. And this was in the <laughs> 70, remember me? Yeah. This was, this yeah, was yeah, in the yeah. 70, Steve. And the shop stands still and everybody's like looking at me like they just seen a ghost, you know? And Ronnie coming after me and he says, he's all right, he's my boy. And everybody starts so to relax and serve me, you know? So, yeah, I think that was the only, yeah, but yeah. Absolutely crazy. So what did, how did that make you feel? You know, Steve, I didn't even think about it. You know, I didn't think about it then. You know, it, it never really troubled me. As long as you get older, you know, as you get older, you start to think what happened then. You know, but quite honestly, Steve, um, boxing, I thought you so much discipline, you didn't think about anything. You know what I mean? You just look at them and just, you know what I mean? Forget about them, to be quite honest. So how did your career develop? Obviously, as a kid, you're going around, you, you know, you're, you're sparring in the in the ring. I mean, what was the first inkling that you had that there was potential there? Steve, to be quite honest, I think when I was, after my first fight, um, when they ring the bell, I went over and I just hit the bloke with the right and the referee called, I entered the fight. What I used to do now, obviously from 14 now, going to Camwell Green, leaving now, took a mistake, going to Camwell Green. You know, I used to put my boxing gloves, obviously we got bag, you know, to put our stuff. But Steve, I used to put mine around my neck, you know, and I'd be walking down Peckham High Street or Camwell Green High Street with the gloves around me, you know, to say, well, I'm a boxer, don't play with me. I mean, but, <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, it, it just went from there. To be quite honest, I am, um, when I... I had the fight when I won seven year title because people don't really respect you until you start to win title and I am I won the seven year the, well it wasn't seven year it was a year at title at the time with Southeast Division and I won that twice and I got beat in the London final by the same bloke twice Jenny Graham and my trainer looked at me and he says well if you're going to be cheated like this you might as well get paid for it and I went paid you mean money so when he said pay, Steve, I thought to myself, hmm, I don't have to be a plasterer like my dad because I think my dad wanted me to be a plasterer, you know? And to be quite honest, Steve, he took me down, you know, when they built up the flat then, you know, and you were talking about 70s, it was really cold, yeah? And he took me there and I was mixing the cement for him. And then while we were mixing the cement, I took it over to him and he says, later on, I want you to start small, you know, where you can start small. And I said to myself, Damn, I, this is not the job what I really wanted to do. You know, so I think he was disappointed I wasn't a plasterer, you know? But having just lost two fights, why why did he suddenly think you could go go professional? Steve, you know what? You know what? Because um, I know it's that... A, it's so, a huge jump up, isn't it? It is, because, but sometimes, you know what? I think being in the game, you know that sometimes it's not fair. You know, and sometimes people see things different. And then, you know... So my judgment is that, of, well, you're not going to beat me this way, so let me go pro, because these guys who beat me were supposed to have gone pro. So I thought, 
in my head, somewhere along the line, I'm going to get you old before you retire. So that's what's in my head because I think, like I said, I used to think I was Muhammad Ali, so nobody couldn't really, I mean, beat me. So that was, you know, what I mean, that kept me going. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Your your amateur career, you didn't have a a, a huge amount of fights, did you? As no, an I think it was like 25, 26 fights. That's right. Fights, yeah, somewhere yeah. around the absolute. You've been doing your own work, Steve. That's right. I did a little <laughs> little, little, little bit of research. That's uh, right, mate. Yeah. yeah, just 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 to prove, just to prove <laughs> I do do a little but, bit. Yeah, I think that twenty five, you know, was sort of a high level. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, a box um for London against Budapest and things like that. So, you know, those 25 was where it would take people a lot longer. Mine was sort of a higher level. So, yeah, it was pretty, it went pretty quick. Uh-huh. And your record was pretty good. What was your win ratio? I think out of that, I probably lost about six, somewhere around there as amateur. Which, of course, you should have won. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Dod- dodgy refereeing decisions, of course. And you broke your hand, I think, in one Steve, fight as well, I, Yeah, you? I broke my hand. Twice, what I tell you, the amateur one, I was boxing a guy in you called Bethnal Green, you know, and while we was lined up to see the doctor, this guy behind me, smaller guy than me, tapped me on the shoulder and he says, um, he asked me who I was boxing. So I said, I don't know, mate. So I said, who are you boxing? So he says, I'm boxing a guy named Cook. You know, so he said to me, if you think he's going to knock me out tonight, you have a problem. And straight away, you know, he's, he's winding me up now and he didn't know I'm Cook, Steve. So I thought to myself, I'm going to kill him. Yeah, I mean, I just thought I'm gonna, I'm just gonna kill him. Yeah, I mean, and anyway, when the, when he got dressed and he went out, I actually come in second. So he was shocked. He stood still to see I was coming out the other side of the rope. And to be quite honest, Steve, when the bell ring, I went over, lined him up with the left hand, I hit him with the right hand, and I hear when my hand went. So the referee, you know, I said ref, and the referee stopped the fight. And Steve, the most annoying thing, you know, the, I don't know if anybody know Bethlehem Green, but there was a pub across the road. You know, when I got outside there after the fight, my hand tied up and everything, I see this young man across the road drinking Guinness. So I went home and I said to my dad, from now on, I want Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> so this fighter, you thought it your call. Did, did you knock him out with that first punch? No, did I didn't, you, Steve. He, no, sta- he stand just... up there and he nod his head and he's looking at me like, come on, Cook, I'm waiting for the rest. And I look around and I says, ref. <laughs> so you break, you break your hand with your first punch. I break my hand with my first punch, Steve. And, he, right? and, he's, standing there and he's standing there looking look at me saying, I'm waiting for you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a strong chin, obviously. <laughs> so um, you have a, a successful amateur career, then you move in, into pro. Who was your first, who was your first trainer? My first trainer is, is well, always been my trainer, really, um, was Brian Lawrence. Who, when I moved to Hackney now, and um, Billy Winter, I think it was Al Hamilton from the used to write for The Voice, tell me that um, there's a guy in Hackney who is looking for fighters and he think I should go with him. And, you know, obviously, turning pro, I didn't know nothing about managers and stuff like that, you know. So I says, okay, then, you know. I'll go, I went, so I moved into Hackney. He just lived up the road. So I turned pro with him. And then my trainer was, he said, I'm going to introduce you to a guy who was, I mean, I was a professional, but didn't do too well named Brian Lawrence. So, but Brian could run, Steve. Trust me, he could run. So I thought, because I know I could run, you know, and he was that, I thought, okay, you know, he was my trainer. So he'd been with my trainer from day one, you know, and I remember sort of do, I used to do long distance running and we park the car at Elfenland Castle and we run around Dulwich and come back and make our way back to Elfenland Castle. And one morning I think I was training for a title fight, Steve. And I've gone off because I start off slow and um, you know, but halfway through I'm now I'm gonna catch him and pass him. And we're going up Dulwich under hill over here, Steve, and I'm running now and I don't see him. 
you know, so now I'm upset and I thought, damn, he's really running fast. So, Steve, I'm increasing the picture. About five miles in now, I thought I should see him. And every bus stop I went, I said to someone at the bus stop, early in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, excuse me, do you see somebody run past here? They said to me, no, Steve, so I'm running now. You know what I mean? I'm running, I'm running up on that hill, Dulwich, and along Camwell Green, going like the elephant, because that's straight. I look up on the bus and I saw somebody bend down. You know, and when I reached by Elephant <laughs> and Castle, he come off the bus and he runs straight across the road and I curse him all that day, Steve. Still curse him now. That, that old chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair old run. How many, how many miles is that? That's about 10 miles. 10 miles, must yeah. be. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that used to be done, to be quite honest, Steve, that used to be done in about under an hour, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. So you're going at a fair pace. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean... Training must be the heart, the worst part of any uh, any boxers. Yeah, train, training. Yeah, you know what, Steve. Some people didn't don't like running in, in as a professional fighter. As you in the gym, you know some people. But running, to be quite honest, Steve, running was my strong point. You know, I love running because in Jamaica, everything we do, everywhere we go is you know run. You run to school, you run back. Everything was running, so running was really my strong point. So when I'm in the gym with fighters, they used to moan they don't like running, but I love running. And as you get older, you realize how important running was. Yeah. So what's a typical day training? I mean, when you're in when you're in lockdown, as it were, fight, you know, preparing for a fight. What's the training um, camp look like? Well, to be honest, Steve, the furthest I ever went, say training, it was say I leave Hackney and went to my auntie. This is the furthest I ever went say I'm staying away. I wasn't like him. Lennox Lewis and all these guys who went to America and went to Jamaica. He didn't I, do I, I was just across the river from, from my house to my auntie. <laughs> so training to be like up running at um, four or five o'clock in the morning, you know, come back. You'd go gym about midday, finish midday, and then you go home, have a rest, have something to it, and then back in the gym at five o'clock in the afternoon or seven o'clock in the afternoon. So that was three, four times a day, mate. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout-outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. So talk us through some of the uh, the characters that you fought against as you uh, worked your way up to your title fights. Because you, you were fighting in an era of some fairly um, fairly classy boxers, weren't you? Steve, there was um, plenty of good fighters around. I mean, they're good. And you know, the thing about it, Steve, I, I, I had four different managers, and I call them the good, the bad, the ugly, and the terrible, you know? And I spent three years with each and every one of them. But, you know, the big manager, them, I, there was a thing in my head, don't go with the big manager then because if I don't go with them, I'll get to fight the guys then what who's making it to the top. But as you get older, you get worse and you realize, you know, it doesn't really work like that, you know? And then, you know, my first guy who I fought was, believe it, yes, it was a guy named Mick Courtney. And Steve, we was inside the gym. We were sparring together. Mick Courtney, I think, had about six fights and win four. And I was at work, you know, and I used to drive for a company in Camwell Green making filing cabinet, you know? And my manager ring me up and he said, you're boxing tonight um, on a Frank Warren show. So I said, who against? So he said, Mick Courtney. I said, Mick Courtney, you can't, you can't be. I said, we sparred together inside the gym. So I didn't expect anything like that. So he turned around to me and says, oh, so you're going to make the man you spar with inside the gym beat you. You know, that's what from my first fight, you know. That's when I realized how hard boxing is. He had six. That was my first fight, you know. So anyway, I beat Mick. I beat him on points. 
That must be quite awkward fighting someone you, you're sparring with because you must have a degree of rapport, for some oh, friendship with de- them. If you're definitely, with. you know, but once you get in there, once you get in there, Steve, you can't, to be honest, you kind of switched off, you know, because you know he's trying to get a win and you're trying to get a win as well, you know, and then the next, then the next thing, as I started to progress through, I won the seven-year title against a young man named T.P. Jenkins who was with Mickey Duff at the time and Danny Mancini and um, he was unbeaten and they said um, T.P. Jenkins was good, this and that and all I said about me, skinny kid, just watch his right hand and I thought, oh, Bennett, what's that all? You know what I mean? But, you know, so I stopped him, I stopped him in nine, you know, and won, won the era title. I just say with all that time, was sort of good stuff. Then I started settling to Hackney and they started to tell me about my, my friend, which me and him get on so much. I call him my ear now, Michael Watson. And what the worst thing you can do, Steve, is get a fighter upset by telling them my next fighter is better looking than you, you know? Uh-huh. So once I started to read the Hackney Gazette, they were saying he's good looking, he can fight, he can punch. And the thing is, I lost two fights abroad, you know, and Mickey Duff decided to take the fight. But those two fights abroad, I lost them points, Steve. And um, it was good experience. I fought a 10-rounder. Just come off a 10-rounder in Finland in an ice ring. And at the end of the 10-rounder, I was saying, ah, oh, Cook, is the weather? You know, I was still shaking. I mean, this man was sweating, you know? So that put me in good stead for the Michael Watson fight. You know what I mean? So obviously, everybody was upset. But yeah, Michael, we speak about it every day. He's turned around to me and he says, thanks for beating me. Because if he didn't beat me, I wouldn't have go do my work to beat Nigel Ben. So yeah, we, we see each other and his people said to me, why, you know, how did he beat Michael Watson? I said he was too flash, but they said he was better looking than me, so I had to beat him up, you know? How is Michael Watson? Michael is good, he he's good, mate. Spoke yeah. to him today, yeah, he's good, he's good. Yeah, excellent. So tell us about your European fight then. Ah, uh, Steve, you know, to be quite honest, you know, every day you go in fighting, you learn. I don't think I was supposed to fight Frank Wittestein. It was somebody else I was supposed to fight. And I think they changed opponent on me. And I didn't realize till I was on the plane, you know. And when I was on the plane, you know, coming into France, I pick up the newspaper, reading a little bit of English. This guy had probably 42 fight, you know, 39 win, one lost and two draw, something like that. And I look at my trainer, I said, I'm going to get killed, you know. And anyway, we went. And funny enough, we went to the hotel and... A waiter come to me and he says, don't eat the food inside the hotel. So I said, what do you mean don't eat the food? He said, don't eat the food. Yeah, I says, okay. So I went to a, a backstreet cafe, had something to eat. But my manager was Ariolan at the time, head inside the, the restaurant and he had runs all day. <laughs> you oh, know? God. Yeah. So um, while, while we went to the show, they were speaking, Stephen. I couldn't understand a word they were saying. But we had a guy from the boxing board, Simon Block, who could speak bit of French, you know, and Simon was speaking and everything started quiet down. And then while we was there, you know, the fight went on anyway, you know, and with his time, he put me down in round nine, you know, and I got back up and I think the last two rounds were probably my best round because I really performed well in them last two rounds, you know, and I stopped him in round 12, you know. And when I finished, you know, I mean, the guy who went for the boxing press, he said, James, they didn't give you a chance, though. They're going to send me one out as a press officer, you know, um, was from the Daily Mirror, you know. So I said, OK, no problem. I mean, so after the fight, Steve, with this time, obviously, they start out a party for him. So, but before that, before we went to the party, you know, I had a pair of shots just made by a title, you know, black, black shirt and things. And the guy said to me, 
can I have your shorts? I said, no, you can't have my short. I just had it made. So why, why would he want your short? Yeah, Steve, that's what he wanted, my short. You know I mean, so he turned around to me and he said to me, mate, he's the king of the gypsy. You better give him your shorts. So I took off the short and I signed it, give him, I said, yeah, mate, you can have it. So he took me to the party and I said to them, Witherstein ain't coming. <laughs> I'm here now, you know? So yeah, this was, um, yeah, it was, but before that, I had a good win in Belfast, you know, and where I stopped some story for the British title. Next thing again, you know, nobody really gave me any chance over there. But, you know, you learn something as you go along, Steve. I said, you know, going along in boxing, I said, I now know that I should even not tell him. I said, if I'm going to get beat, I said to my opponent, then you better beat me between one and five. And most of them knocked me out in the first round. They're going to beat me. But as I get older, I thought, it's something I should not give away. You know what I mean? But I've always think the longer I go is the better. I'm going to get once I just get warm up and survive the first couple of rounds. I just come into my own. And I stopped some story in um, 11 round in Belfast, you know. And to be quite honest, Steve, I never know nothing about guns. The, the, the guns I've seen were sort of on TV or tie guns. And when I went to Belfast, there was guns pointing at you. We stayed in the hotel called the Europa Hotel. And I wake us up in the middle of the night saying there was a Santex bomb. You know, and I, I was thinking about, I'm not going to see my family. But, you know, to be honest and to be fair... When I went to the show and stopped some story, the people, them, they did respect me. They gave me a lot of respect. They know their boxing. They know their sport. But Steve, inside the hotel, I, like I said, I like running. I stay in a place named Banga. And I got up running one morning and the lady come in. She said, good morning, James. So I said, good morning. She said, where did you go? I said, I went running. She looked at me. She said, a black man in Highland went running. <laughs> Next morning, she come down. She said, you're going running? I said, nope. <laughs> Not a wise move. Yes, mate. So it was pretty good. And after, you know, the people then appreciate it. But Steve, you know what? In the next morning, I was at the airport and I saw three guys come towards me and they said, mate, we saw the boxing last night. And I thought, oh, mate, I'm going to need to fight my way out of this. But to be honest, Steve, they give me the biggest buckler whiskey that you ever seen and say, well done, mate. So, yeah, Yeah. they love their sport, you know? It's interesting what you said. They didn't send that. You didn't have much uh, press coverage when you had a European title fight, or even when you're in Ireland. Do you, do you think you didn't get the 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 publicity or the credit you thought you deserved at that time? You know, Steve, I I, I didn't get the I didn't get the credit, and I didn't get it the publicity because, as you say, because my manager them there was pretty small guys trying to make it anyway. So I don't think. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, so I don't think people did realize they, that. Yeah, you know I mean, they could have produced a fighter, get a fighter probably at that level and nobody expect me to sort of win at that level you know what I mean but um, deep down I said to myself I'm looking at the opponent these guys fighting I thought I'm better than that I could do better than that I just have to just focus you know every morning I get up start to run now speaking to myself I just had to focus you know like everything being a boxer because they said it's a it's a chess game you know and I went into fight now thinking, okay, as long as you don't knock me out in the first couple of rounds, I'll be all right. I'm going to come on. And the first couple of rounds now, I try to be smart. Instead of going out there swinging, you know, I try to be smart and, you know, just start the box a couple of rounds before I started. I've got a couple of questions to ask as, as, a, as a layman who watches boxing from, you know, from time to time, the big fights. And I, I too was a big fan of uh, Ali. Who, I mean, who, who wasn't? I've got to ask. What's it like to be knocked out? What is the actual physical sensation of being... Well, mate, um, let me tell you. Let me tell you this, right? <laughs> I was defending this seven-year title in Manchester, and we had the famous referee over here at the time named Harry Gibbs. Yes, you know? no, very... Yeah, you, even I would know the name. Yeah. That's right. And then um, 
after I was fighting a guy from Croydon named Tony Burke, who was sort of a muscular fighter, and, you know, he's a big puncher, you know? And then after the first round, I went in there and I hit Tony Burke, and Tony Burke started to shake a bit, you know? And I started to drop my hand. Harry Gibbs followed me over to the corner, and he said to me, Cook, keep your hand up. This boy could punch. Now, obviously, he didn't have to tell me that. You know? I mean, he's a referee. <laughs> Steve, I come back out, same thing. I hit Tony Burke, he regular, put my hand up, I went in. Tony Burke must have hit me with a right hand. Bam, I fall straight down. Boom, in the middle of the ring, you know. She expect Harry Gibbs to take up us, take up the count and start count. He looked over at me and said, Cook, I told you so. <laughs> Steve, I got up with the biggest headache in the world. Yeah, you know I mean, went back to the changing room and everything was spinning. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, I kind of like Harry Gibbs. You know, <laughs> you know I, mean? I, sh I, sh I should listen to the play. <laughs> you know, but being knocked out, you know what, Steve? I don't think you feel the punches. Not to say it's it's a hurtful thing. It's just when you've been knocked out, they start of everything just shake up. You know I mean, so the brain just shake up. So you're unsteady. You know that that's what you feel like. You know I mean, do, that's do, why. Do you do you black do you black out or is it just like? Well, a, you don't a, really a black out, but you start to come sort of dizzy. You seen you know you seen things. So what happened? That's why they said if you get knocked out. You stay on your feet and, you you know, you take a seven count before you start rise to just make your blood settle again. But being fighters, we're big, we're hero. We don't want to do that. So as soon as we get knocked down, the first thing comes to our head, what we're doing down here? So we jump up. And by that time, your brain's still spinning. And that's all that the fight that gets stopped, you know, even myself. So, uh, I mean, as I said, as you get older, you start to learn these things, what you shouldn't do, you know? Did you, did you, was there ever a point where you, where you got hit? You know, obviously, I've never been in a boxing fight. We've we been hit or been knocked anything. What the bloody hell am I doing this for? Uh, ir irrespective of the money, I mean. No, there, there was no point. I tell you, we are the only time I ever think like that, to be quite honest. I don't know if you remember a fighter named Dennis Andrews. You know, yes, from Hackney. You know, I first come to Hackney and they put me inside the ring to start to spar with Dennis Andrews, you know. And after three rounds, I was young, flash, and Dennis Andrews punched him. He used to miss me by a mile. But by round three, that was getting closer to my chin, you know, so the trainer stopped the sparring. And Mick, I went to a gym where Mickey Duff had now, and John Mugabe come inside. And obviously, I didn't know who John Mugabe was. I just heard his name, you know. And they said to me, do you want to spar? So I looked at John Mugabe, and I said, no, he's too big. There's Danny Mancini said to me, no, James, he's only 11 stone. And he went on the scale, and he weighed exactly 11 stone. So I said, okay, cause I'm, I'm middleweight. You know what I mean? I'm half a stone heavier. So I said, yeah, let me spar. To be quite honest, Steve, he put out a jab, and he hit me with a jab. And I started the rope a dope and think to myself, damn, that's just a jab. What if he hit me with a right hand? You know what I mean? And I think that's the only time, you know, I ever think about, you know, this man must not hit me, because if he hit me, I'd be in trouble. Yeah. Because I just wonder if boxers are just... Very brave, or, or just damn damn stupid. I Both. Can't have a bit of <laughs> <laughs> Both. Obviously, obviously, at the, the, the highest of high levels, you know, there's this huge, you know, huge amounts of money involved, and obviously that that's plays a significant part in one one's career and decision sure. making. But at your level, and I've also interviewed some guys at amateur level who were just trying to break into the, you know, the the, the pro game. They're, having to, they're not only having to train and work, but they're selling tickets as well. And it's Steve, like, you know they're, they're going to do their own marketing. Really? I, I, to need all absolutely. That? And I said to people, you know, Steve, I even bring it up with the boxing board. I said, boxing now is too tough. There ain't a lot of promoters out there. And all the promoter them now want 
you know, you, as you said, the sell ticket and things like that, you know, which is unfair. As you say, it's so tough. Yeah, I mean, guys got to go to work. They've got to get up. They've got to sell ticket. The point is they've got to pay promoter. They've got to pay for their opponent and they've got to pay their coach. Yeah, I mean, and I must admit, I had a young man like that who was working night shift, you know, training for a fight. And after he paid out everybody, he got £300 left. I couldn't take nothing from him, Steve, because I know how hard it was. I know how hard it was for me. So, you know, but the only problem was around my time, to be quite honest, Steve. I don't think I had to sell a little ticket. And the more ticket I sell, I think I'll pay for them myself. It was, was with Mickey Duff fighting Mark Hill. I give away a few tickets and Mickey said, you'll pay for them. Yeah, I mean, and but that was, that was it, Steve. It was, you, yeah, it's, it's more tougher now. That, you know, things supposed to move on. And now you think it'd be a lot easier. It's a lot easier. And to me, what's annoying me about it is because promoter do get a lot of sponsors, but they still expect these young men to go around sell ticket for them, which I think is totally unfair. Maybe today it's tougher at the beginning and it's it's easier the higher up you go, the more... Yeah, but, you know, to be honest, Steve, you know, you if, you, if you sell ticket, you get um, 10, 15 wins. So when you reach that level, you can't do it. You see... When I was boxing, you've got to take this guy out of position to be in the position. You mean, so by that time, you learn what boxing is about and you learn how to box and things like that. Now, it doesn't happen because if you pay for your opponent, obviously, they're going to pick somebody what you think you could be in that level. So you're not learning anything at all. So, I, you know, I kind of think this sport has gone backwards a bit because, like I said, there's less promoter. We've got two big promoters, which is Eddians and Barriers, and obviously they're not going to take a normal man off the street like myself. If I didn't have these guys around me who was promoting our manager at the time, although they put me in hard fights, you understand me? If I didn't have the ability to do it, you know, I could have made it. You know what I mean? And these guys now, if, you know, because they have now have to pay for opponents and become easier because they're selling tickets. They, you know, they're not getting the experience. Or the level are learning what they're supposed to be learning. It's a, it's a tough gig, whichever way you look at it. That's Definitely. For sure. So, uh, uh, and when your career came to an end, was nearing an end, were you think you becoming a trainer at that stage? Because you did some training, didn't you, for several yeah, years I, afterwards? Yeah, I did, Steve. I am. Um, the point is, uh, when I when I retire, I remember 1988. I don't remember you remember boxing name Earl Bummer Graham. You know, I absolutely do. Bummer absolutely. Graham. Yeah. Earl Bummer yeah. Graham to me was one of the best talent this country ever Legend. had. And yeah. um, I boxed him in Sheffield. You know, and um, he stopped me in round seven. And I said to myself, if any British fighter beat me, I'd retire. And Steve, I was getting, I was 33, 34, and I think I've got to secure something for my family. So I was taking fights. I mean, I don't think I was having the rest, what I should. And then I phoned up Mickey. And I said to Mickey, Mickey, I need to defend the title. And Mickey looked through the rating. He says, ah, oh, James, we've got nobody. But I've got a young man here. He's 21. He sell ticket and he's white. And I thought to myself, is Mickey Duff really trying to tell me something? You know what I mean? So <laughs> I turned around to Mickey and I said, don't worry, Mickey, I will knock him out, you know? I defend against Carlin Scott, Yoko, Bethnal Green, and to be honest, I lost on points, and I said, that's the end for me. So I went straight into coaching, you know, and I realized from going into coaching how hard it is to get fighters to the level that they should go. And because a lot of them, Steve, don't want to do the work. As you can say, they're, they're working. If they've got no sponsors, you know, they're working all day. They've got to feed their family. They've got to go training in the evening. It become very hard. It become very tough. So even good fighters, what's supposed to make it, don't make it because they've got they've got to feed their family. Yeah. I mean, so out of every, I don't know, 100 fighters that go through your, your training regime, I mean, how many of them are going to be make honest, it? To pr- it? Be honest, probably about five. I, I mean, yeah, to be honest, probably about five. 
you know, the rest I mean, of them. When I say make it, I mean make it, make some sort of living out of it. Not to be honest, you probably would fight. The rest of them yeah. will probably, yeah, the rest of them will probably struggling. You know, it, you know, it, it, it's pretty, pretty hard. And if anybody look at the fighters and what's going on, it's only the top five probably will be making a living out of it. You know, everybody else will be struggling after that. So tell us about the uh, the Pedro Club then, um, and your your life and work involved with uh, the youth work and community work that you do, and that you become famous for and well known for. And please say you got you got recognised by the Queen back in two thousand seven, I think. Didn't you? Yeah, thanks, mate. And um, when we did the interview, they said, "Would you like to give the Queen anything?" I said, "I'd like to give her one of my string vests." You know, because <laughs> I used to wear very special. Yeah, Steve, I used to wear like a string vest, so they asked me that. And to be quite honest, you know. Um, she made me nervous, Steve. I, I, you know, I was sweating, you know, and I was saying, please, mum, don't ask me no more questions. I think the second lady that frightened me was the queen and my mum, you know, nobody else, you know. You actually said to the queen, please don't ask me any questions. Yeah, I did, Steve, you know. Cause, uh, Steve, <laughs> I think I, I was I was chucking down bucket of sweat and I didn't want the sweat to go nowhere near, <laughs> you know what I mean? So that was, that, that was my way out, you what, know what, what, I mean? what, what was their response to that? She said, she said, she said to me, Keep it up, young man. Hackney needs somebody like you. You know what I mean? And uh, she said to me, and I reversed. And I think, Steve, I was about, if I was 12 stone, I think I was 11 stone when I finished for that few seconds <laughs> with the Queen. I sweat so much, mate. I was nervous. But you, you, you know, the thing is, Steve, I was doing youth work from, from a very early age, you know, but also what made me put a lot of effort into club. Because um, when I was growing up, there was a lot of club around, girls skate, boys scout, all clubs around, you know. And the point is, was if there was six of us, what they call gang, on the street, four of us would end up going into the gym or doing something, and then you get the other few follow. Now we're supposed to be 20 years ahead of time, and there's supposed to be money, there's supposed to be this. But they're building, they're building, they're building, and everything is building, but you don't see them putting no youth club, kids them still struggling, lot of mental health out there with young people them. I mean, lot of family out there, lot of problems, Steve. You know, p- p- people are doing two jobs just to try and pay the rent. The kids is on the street, you know? So it's always been like that for me to put something back. And I said to everybody who do something, no matter who they are, I said to them, go back in the area and do something. You understand me? And to be honest, Steve, I, like I says, I'm a reggae man, you know? And somebody phoned me up one day and wanted me to do something with Tim Westwood. Now, because I'm a reggae man, Steve, I don't never know who Tim Westwood was, you know? But the girls, them and all the local kids, them know Tim Westwood. And he come to Pedro Club, you know? And I thought, this man is the same age as me. His trousers is low, you know? And when I said to him, how are you going to change the music? Because I've got a studio in the Pedro Club and I'm very strict. I said to them, when they come in, sing me a love song. They can't sing me a love song, they don't use the studio. You know, because I don't want everything about violence and things like that. And I said to Tim Westwood, are you going to change the music? He said, no, because it's their living. So I said, I can't work with you. you know I mean, now the fact that these guys was inside the estate, coming, taking pictures and taking photos, I'm saying, who is this guy? You know, I thought, Steve, I didn't know who this guy was, you know what I mean? But I talked to all the youngsters and they know he was. So I said, oh, he, does he play reggae? They said, no. So I said, well, I don't know him. What, sort of, what was he playing? So the grime and that's sort of Yeah, all that sort of stuff, <laughs> you know what I mean, So, you know what I mean? So probably that's why I didn't know him. <laughs> you, you just wanted a bit of lover's rock. I just wanted a bit of lover's rock, you know? I tell all my fighters, listen to reggae. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a bit, a bit about the youth work. That you, I mean, how did you get involved with it? Because Steve, I, I know... You know, because when I got involved with it, it's 
probably from the age of 14 in Camwell Green, my trainer used to ring me up and he used to say to me, um, when he when he was working late, he used to say to me, take the class, you know? And I was taking older guys than me and younger guys. And every time I started to finish the session, there was a smile at the end of the session, you know what I mean? And I thought, I wanted to do this. And I said to myself, even if I make it, yes or not, I want to do this. And even when I was working, Even at 14 Steve, years old? Yeah, you know, when I was 14, I, I was working, getting good money. I used to travel from here to Dully to run youth club. You know I mean, spent about 40 years in Hackney just around the area trying to get things for the young people. Them. So yeah, I just feel in a time, young people need some form of guidance, especially now. And I think everybody with got an idea. They need these places. They need places open. Because like I said, if, you know, they're out there on the street and you got this place up and I guarantee they'll be doing something inside them. So the Pedro Club, as I understand it, has been going, had been going for many years before you got involved with it. I mean, back in the 30s. Steve, it been going from 1929. And when I told people that, they looked at me and I said to them, the cocoa butter work wonders, you know, when I said 1929. <laughs> yeah, not used to 29. <laughs> yeah, you know, it been going from that, Steve. It was Lady Burness who opened it then, and then Elizabeth Taylor was a patron. You know, and then it was closed in, um, I think, on 93, 94. Then I got involved, found the document, former management with, you know, the boxing I think people. You're, you're, you're underplaying that a bit. You got involved. They, they actually were going to close it down, weren't they? I mean, <laughs> yeah, like there was. There was. Yeah, there was. And, you know, like I said, I got some people involved and, you know, got some money, went to the bank, say there was one signature. The bank gave me £20,000. I just tried to pay up the bill and try to keep it going since then. You know what I mean? Been hard work. But, you know what, Steve? Every night, you know, the club is packed. You know, we run two sessions for 5 to 15 and 15 and over. You know what I mean? And his club is packed. And it's something in an area where you're surrounded by state is well needed. So, so where is it? Is it in Peckham? No, it's in, it's in Hackney. So, it's in Hackney. Uh, yeah, Steve, I'm just blessed that all my kids them is grown up. So I've chucked a lot of money into the club myself. And when I don't have no money, Steve, I must admit that we go to London Xbox. I got to promote the name more prior. And this guy helped me out. Paul Fairweather, this guy helped me out, you know, and then um, give me some money and say, okay, go pay the bill this week. So, yeah, it's been, it's been good. Is it um, like a registered charity? Do you, it you is a registered charity, Steve. It's it been registered. Yeah, it's registered. And, you know, hard it account, everything done, you know what I mean? So we got to get everything done, you know what I mean? So what it sort just, of things you do? You got There's a boxing club there. I'd see if there's a, that's, to be honest, there wasn't one there, but because of the discipline, that's the first thing I put in, you know, was a boxing club. Now, it's also a registered boxing club, you know, where we run shows. And every summer I run a show there. It's part of one of our biggest fundraisers. But because of COVID-19 now, everything started to stand still. So everything is started struggling. But we're looking to open back up next week, hopefully, we we're getting together and hoping that the club is on because everybody wanted the kids them is on holiday. We know they're gonna need somewhere to go. So yeah, the Pedro Club will be back home running for the young people to come in. Yeah, it's fantastic. So have you seen oh, I guess you must have seen some lives turn around from the streets and gang culture coming into the club? Honest mate, definitely. I'll tell you what happened. There was a young man who I met at Hummington Station and he says to me, Do you remember me? You know, and I said vaguely, you know, and he says to me, he had a fight in Pedro Club. I mean, he was good at football, you know, and he's now playing in Scotland, you know. And yeah, I've seen guys then who come in the year working now, who was, you know, sort of on the street doing everything. But these guys running, a lot of guys turn around. And like I said, I try and get the guys them down there, the champion them down there, to give out trophies, to speak to them. we got Derek Williams, a former European champion, he's a chair of the club. You know what I mean? So 
what I'm saying to these youngsters, we all was born on the street, was born in the estate, we live on the road just like you guys. I mean, but because we was focused on something we like, we've done it so you can do it so you don't have to go down the road where we don't want you to go. You know what I mean? So this is why I'm so passionate about anybody who done anything in that area. Though even if it was hard for you, you're struggling, you, it's, it's lesson learned. You can guide somebody through and give them a better life. Provide them with some sort of education as well, or is it just on the social side, like Steve, the boxing and the, got we, the music? We do everything, mate. I mean, from education, music, heart, drama, we provide everything for them. We, you know, we do everything for them, anything they want. There. I mean, I went to the council to be quite honest, and I said to them I want to start a football team. They told me there was a football team in the US. Steve, we got four, four teams. Yeah, I mean, you know, so, you know, we're people who's cutting down and we're, they don't want things happen. The point is, I don't care what people says, you're moving out the area, whatever, people still coming in, you still got youngsters, they're still going to need strong youth worker to guide them through. Yeah. My dad was a hackney boy. Was he? he? Was, um, Did he support Arsenal? We're Spurs. Oh, come on, Steve, stop that. We we, we need to, uh, we, me and you, we, we listen. I'm going to make a date for you to come to the gym now for a training session, Steve. Stop no, that. No, now. you'll definitely beat the crap out <laughs> of me. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're sickling like Arsenal. Okay, you can have spread. <laughs> you going to win the, uh, you're going to win the Steve, cup again this we, year? We're going to win it. We're going to win it, man. Yo, yeah, Chelsea's there. No, Chelsea. on the cup. We, we've got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they got stuff last night. I know, mate. No, but guys, we're resting for the big day, Steve, in two weeks' time. You, you know how it goes. You know at them level what we do. <laughs> Look, my... Um, my, my my in-laws are all Arsenal. My family's all all been Spurs. But See, we all, they're we sensible, Steve. Your in-laws is sensible, mate. <laughs> yeah, but my, my my wife changed as soon as we got together. Oh, she Arsenal. <laughs> she we grew up in an Arsenal household, but she's a big Spurs fan. Serious. We're, I need to speak to yeah. your wife, Steve. After the show, we need to speak to your wife. I need to talk to her. Well, they'll, they'll, they'll be no, they'll be no persuaded here. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been uh, it's been absolutely delightful speaking to you. Uh, we've got to give a plug to your book. Yes, um, because because your life story is written by Melanie Lloyd. Tell us a bit about Melanie. Melanie um, Steve, she's, she's um she's a great lady to be honest. You know, um, boxing. You know, now just holding up to ladies. You know, and you know, from when I was growing up, there wasn't much lady about interested in boxing. I would write about boxing. I do anything. Melanie Lloyd, I think, has done three book, and when she done the first one, I said to her, I want to be in all of them. <laughs> you know, my name mentioned somewhere in Alabama, to be honest. And then I think for a joke, I said to Melanie, I want to write my story. You know what I mean? And she said, yes, we'll do it for you. And one morning she phoned me up. She said, she make out a plan and said, we're going to do it. And, you know, and she has wrote it. And I hope that, um, you know, I didn't just want to write about just boxing and fighting and, you know, everything. It's got a bit of everything in there. You know what I mean? And, you know, the feedback and the book is good. And what I said, the it's, only it's way I was going to write yeah. it. It's a lovely book. Yeah, uh, thanks, man, for the donation it's to go really to Pedro Youth book. Club, you know? Yeah, and she, she's done a great job. She, um, she has, mate. She has. She has. Because yeah. it, it's not, you know, you get some autobiographies and you think, oh, really? It's a bit dull. I did this. I did that. But this is your life story, and it's pretty much along the lines, as we've discussed, you picked out some of the, some of the lovely stories. But, you know, you growing up in Jamaica to your time as a kid on the streets of London and obviously some of the fights – but also some of your work on the streets and all community work, but it's, but it's in your voice. And that's the bit I really, really like Thanks, mate. reading it. It's like you're, you're speaking <laughs> <Yeah>. to me. <laughs> and now, now I've spoken to you and met you in your smiling <laughs> face. I, I, I get it even more. So you've done some amazing work. Obviously you've had a, an excellent career as a, as a professional boxer. 
uh, and a trainer. You've done some great work, um, you know, both on the streets and in the club, and you've been recognised for that, which is which is fantastic. What, what's what's next for you? Now, a published author. What what's next? You know, I've never looked at it and say this is what's going to happen. To be quite honest, now I'm you know doing the youth work and see what's going on outside. You know, uh, you know, I said to my family every day. Obviously, you know, I've got four daughters and one son, and I said to everybody. I feel kind of feel sorry for my grandkids then, you know, because the way things is going on at the moment. So, and still acting counts to get rid of me. I'll be trying to run the Pedro club until I'm not there no more, just to give the young people them a chance, a place of their own where they can feel comfortable and be happy. And that's all But basically I want to carry and do, Steve. Yeah. So do you still see problems on the street where you are? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because um, they don't, just to be honest, Steve, people will say, there's a lot of stuff out there for them. But what they don't see is the now there's a lot also a lot of mental health with our young people. You know, they don't see that side of it. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's smoking or drinking, it goes into that and people don't see that. And, you know, young people need to speak and talk. You know, I've got a couple of young people that come to me this morning, wanted to train, you know, home the gym for them, charge them no money, let them go in there and train, you know, we'll help them, you know what I mean? And yes, there is still a lot of problem because like I said, if you don't provide somewhere for all young people and you're talking about the next generation, you're going to have problems because, you know, building all these flats around and then giving the council one flat back or two flat back and then you build nothing for the young people. It's okay, you can build park or a park with training thing, but young people don't want, they want places where they can go, chill out, somebody to speak to them and tell them what's right from wrong. You know, and Steve, if you come to Pedro, everywhere you go, you'll see a sign saying, respect manager, come through the door. I was with the police yesterday in Hackney and I Two, three young men come through the door and they walk through and they never say good evening. And I send them back out, call them back in again. What do you say when you come in? Oh, good afternoon. Hello. And it's all that, Steve. You teach a little bit. At the end of the day, when they get older, at least even if they haven't got the brains like a genius, somebody could say, you know what? At least they've got manners and respect and their attitude is different. So we'll give them a chance. And you're the sort of role model that these kids need, aren't you? And I, I guess there's, there's some guys like you, but there's probably not enough people like you out there. Steve, a lot of the youth workers, them probably is like me out there, but there ain't no job for them. And you can't expect people to do things and everywhere is closed down and, you know, there is nothing for them. You know what I mean? So, you know, I know there's guys out there like me and I know guys out there want to do the work like me, but obviously like everybody else, Steve, they've got to live. I'm just grateful that them, all my kids, them is grown up and um, C19 is done so I could earn some money now, God, do it talking somewhere and things like that you know what I mean mate but yeah you know I just feel that it's so important to guide the next generation guide them through you know and let them know what is really happening and it's it's not as bad as they think it was growing up because like you say in my time you know was skinhead you know national front you know from Dulwich to Peckham you know so it's not like that things is changing slowly I mean slowly so and these guys got to come together and realize it is you know and if you can guide them through to me you know, it's better than anything else in the world. You know what I mean, mate? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, we're coming coming to the end of our conversation now, uh, James. So I ask all my guests at this point in our conversation if they can think of one or two places in London that are particularly personal to them. I don't know if you remember to... The place personal to me, I'll be honest to you, is um, Peckham, because everything starts from in Peckham and Finsbury Park. Every day I drive past Finsbury Park or I drive down the park, I'll 
come out and I'll go walk in the park because I used to do a lot of running in the park, Finsbury Park, a lot of training in Finsbury Park. And to see people running around it now and the little bit of change is happening to it. And I used to think, I was here when this was there. So Finsbury Park is very personal to me. I remember I, me and Michael Watson was speaking about it yesterday. We, Michael used to run in the park. I used to run in the park and we used to try to avoid each other, you know. And just before the accident, Michael said to me, Cook, what about the return? And I said, you've got to beat Chris Eubanks first. You know what I mean, mate? And the accident happened. But because I used to spend so much time in this park, you know what I mean, you know, and see how it changed and people going there now doing things. Yeah, it's sort of a personal park to me. And driving across Shoreditch to the other side of London, where I used to say to people, Shoreditch was so dull, you get one light in the 70s, Steve, going through Shoreditch. I know Shoreditch is like West End, so I, I like driving through there to go to the other side of London, you know? You want, you want to listen to my podcast episode from the guest I interviewed last week? <laughs> Serious, Jones, who, who wrote a book all about Shoreditch yeah, and yeah. The, uh, the gang, the gangs that, because that was the biggest slum in London back in Victoria. Yeah, time. absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and now it's, um, well, it's anything but a slum at the moment. <laughs> absolutely, mate, absolutely, you know? Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, it's been brilliant. So how can people get in touch with you or connect with you or find out more about you? People phone me all the time, you know, they can phone me, they get info at pedroclub.com, got a Pedro number, they can give me a bill, you know, or they can send me an email, as you know, cook underscore 405.com. My telephone number is 0795-0499-754. Email in for the Pedro Club, mate. And we're there. I wasn't expecting you to give me a private number. <laughs> Steve, Steve, everybody <laughs> got right. my number, mate. So it's all good. You know what I mean? I answer everybody to everybody. Knows, everybody knows where to find you. That's right. I mean, you're coming to Hackney. Coming to Hackney, somebody says, where does James live? And they'll find me. The smallest kid in Hackney will point you to where I am. So it's all good, uh, you know? That's fantastic. And let's not forget your wonderful book called um, James Cook, MBE, My Story, Guardian of the Streets uh, with Melanie Lloyd. Uh, can be found in all good bookshops and, of course, Amazon.com. Absolutely, Steve. And all the money from the book, Steve, is getting into the Pedro Youth Club. You know, oh, brilliant. So well, yeah. I bought my I bought my hardback copy. So, yes, um, I'm right. <laughs> glad to make my small contribution uh, because it's it's, it's, a, it's an excellent read. Thanks a lot, Steve. Once again, James, it's been an absolute treat to speak to you. And hopefully next time I see you, you'll be down at the... Um, Pedro Youth Club, Pedro Steve. Club. We have a summer show every year. So come up there and get some West Indies food. The wife love cooked to. well. She ain't bad. <laughs> <laughs> I love to. It's been great. Nice speaking yeah, to you. Thanks, Steve. I absolutely love creating your London legacy for you. And the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here and I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.